This is the Singer's Tension Podcast, the podcast by singers about singing for singers. Welcome to another episode of the Singer's Tension Podcast. I'm Jordan Erickson, and my guest today is Juno-nominated artist Story. I had to have Story on the show because of her seriously enviable vocal control and the multitudes of genres she works into her concept albums. She gives us hip-hop, R&B, reggae, gospel, all with the power and control of an opera singer. And if you haven't checked out her 2020 debut album, Chapter 3, The Come Up, you should do it today. It is really good music. Welcome to the podcast story. Thank you so much for having me in that beautiful intro. Yeah, it's my pleasure to have you here. So anyone who Googles you is instantly going to know about your personal story and what the album is about. But can you just tell me a little bit about your life experience that you bring to the tracks for anyone that's just being introduced to you here? Yeah, sure. So um, I've lived a pretty extraordinary life, I would say, and um, I wouldn't trade it for the world, but it's been, uh, it's had a lot of ups and downs. And chapter three that come up is basically a concept album about a woman trying to leave the sex industry and get into the music industry only to realize that both are equally misogynistic and problematic. And in the album, we explore um, her relationships, like with her mother and her family, romantic relationships, and uh, with money in her career. And that woman is me, and I've I've lived all of these experiences. So it's a very, um, you know, that album really was my blood, sweat, and tears, you know, quite literally. In in the music, anyone that listens to it, you can tell that there's a lot of pain with what you went through. And obviously when you were dealing with all of that, there was a lot of feelings around music and maybe some negative feelings. How did you deal with getting through that and coming back to music in a positive way? It's a process. And I think it, that I'm still on that journey. Um, not every day is always easy. Um, but music as much it, as it holds some trauma in my life has always been my therapy since I was a child, not just music, but all kinds of art forms as I'm also a visual artist and I've done some film stuff as well, but, um, art and creation has always been kind of like a purge for me. And so I think that's, that's what really brought me, uh, full circle into, to loving music again and being able to do it without like having all these like really bad memories associated to it. Um, It was the idea that it was not only a therapy for me, but that it could be impactful to other people and help other people in similar situations um, that really pushed me forward. Yeah, because it is really cool the way you wrote the album as a concept album. And if someone listens to it beginning to end, they really get a strong feeling for your story. 
uh, and you do all of the art for the album and you're a huge part of all of the videos, not just being in them, but also directing and producing them as well, correct? Yes, I have directed and edited and animated even um, a few of my music videos, um, but I do have some amazing collaborators that I was able to work with along the way. And um, yeah, so, but I, I have, it was initially out of desperation that I started directing um, videos because I just didn't have the funds or the, um, you know, connections to be able to get people to direct my stuff initially. Mm -hmm. Did you feel like getting those videos out to go with the music was crucial for the listener's experience or was it more promotional? Um, I think um, some of them were more about the storytelling and that was very important for me. Um, Money Ain't Free, which was directed by Karima Issa. Um, and she's actually the director of all the um, Interlude 19 album videos. Um, but she uh, brought a story through into that um, music video uh, that, I, that I thought was very imperative. And also for me, Up was a very important uh, story to be told and um, it was four months of clay animating in my mother's basement you know stop motion takes a very long time so um, yeah it definitely wasn't just promotional but I do think that our world is very visual so we do need to remember that that visual element is very important for promoting our music. Yeah, and for the listener to feel like they know a little bit more about you and have more of a personal attachment. It's funny how we do that as listeners. Like we don't know these artists, but we see them in a video and, and the video speaks to us and we're like, yeah, like I, I like that artist. I feel that artist. I know her. <laughs> um, your album, chapter three, is really chapter three to come up as an expose of you know your abusive relationship with a former partner and your forced work in the sex industry. But then after you, you went and you did your yoga retreat and kind of found that you wanted to come back to music, you also returned to dancing? Yeah, I did. Yeah. And you mentioned in a, another interview that you felt that you'd really reclaimed that stage, so to speak, in a way that empowered you. And you're definitely not the only musician to be open about their past work in the industry, which I think raises a really interesting question of how artists shape their image. Because by working as a dancer, it would seem logically to fit with an artist's image if they were bringing a lot of sexuality into their lyrics or their sound or their look. But you're not an overly sexual artist in any of those ways. So was there ever any fear of making this public knowledge that you would be judged? Well, one, yes, I was concerned about that in to some degree as a human being. But on the other hand, I also realized that the 1% of people, if it was only 1% of people that got my story and didn't judge me and, you know, were empowered by it, then that was the 1% that I was interested in reaching and that I didn't really care about the naysayers and the haters and whatever, you know, like people can judge all they like, um, they're not in my shoes. But um, another thing was that it was actually very important for me to break stereotypes. And I think that generally people believe that you know, um, sex workers are overly sexual or, you know, promiscuous or whatever. Um, and I just don't want to continue to perpetuate that stereotype. I know people have known me for, you know, 
a very long time and they would have never guessed that I was a dancer until I came out with it. And why? Because I'm articulate, because I'm educated, you know, like there's so many things that um, seemingly go against that I would seemingly go against the grain, but I know so many women who are super educated and super articulate and super smart and not super promiscuous and not that being promiscuous, there's anything wrong with it. It's just that we, you know, humans are humans and we need to tell more stories that vary in nature and that don't put people into boxes. Yeah, I totally agree. And maybe that's one of the nicest things about the generation that we live in is I do believe that there is a shift in the way people are viewing uh, all, all different facets of sex work because originally you would think someone was very promiscuous or they came from a really hard upbringing and they've been forced into that line of work. But then if you actually find out that someone you know is working in that industry, all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's so interesting. Or if you speak to someone when you're at a strip club and you find out they're a university student or they're an entrepreneur or whatever, you you change that vision you have of what is a sex worker because we are becoming a society that is really focused on women embracing their sexuality and their independence and being able to just take control of whatever image of themselves they wanna put out there, whatever is in their heart. And that completely contradicts with, you know, the vision of what is a sex worker from 20, 30 years ago. And there's also that push politically now, especially in Canada, that the NDP party wants to legalize the sex trade. So it's becoming less and less taboo. And I think has the potential to be a platform for someone to say, I I enjoy this and I'm taking control of my body and I'm not ashamed of this work. It's just a part of human nature to like beautiful things and, and want that contact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. I think things are moving in a positive direction. I, I still think that it's very slow moving, but it is happening. And I'm very happy to see that transformation, even in just, you know, the past 10 years, I think it's, it's already moved like leaps and bounds from that. Definitely. So. And it also makes me think of how Instagram is basically another platform for really sexualized images. I know that they've just changed their policy a little bit to moderate that more, but uh, whether someone's an artist or just an Instagram artist, let's call them, there are a lot of very sexualized images on there. And so our generation, anyone with a phone is really bombarded with those images. And maybe to an extent, we've all just accepted bodies as more of a beautiful thing. Let's share it. Let's make it art versus, oh, cover yourself up. I'm of one mind in the sense that I kind of feel like I live in a gray area in the sense, because there's people on one side of the fence who are like, yeah, women should be able to dress however they want and be sex workers and do whatever they want and be free and be vocal about it. And I 100% agree with that. And I am totally of that mind. And then on the other mind, people are like, well, you know, um, when we sexualize women's bodies, we are still kind of living in the world of um, this patriarchal society where we're like, our ideas of what is sexy and what is, you know, what people want to see and what the algorithms push online are still based in our patriarchal society. Like they were built in that realm. And so they're, they're not necessarily what women and what we as like more conscious beings would maybe think is a healthy way of living. So 
I am in, in, in of both minds. I do agree that like the way that we're dressing the heels, the, you know, makeup and all that stuff has been kind of built into our society and the way that we were raised to believe that sexy and worth and attention, um, that's how you kind of get it, you know? But I also am in the mind of like, we cannot shame people for wanting to dress that way and for wanting to, you know, be sexual beings. So it's kind of like, we live in a world <laughs> that's kind of fucked up and we are trying to, you know, live within that fuckery, if you know what I mean. Like we're trying to live within this um, realm and we're trying to make it a little bit better. But my issue is that I feel like the whole society actually would need to kind of be dismantled and rebuilt if we wanted to build it in a more healthy way, you know, in a more equal, inclusive way. Yeah, that's very well said. Uh, there's so much pushback now, which I love to see on what is beautiful and breaking down that stigma of this is the only kind of beauty that there is, as you said, like heels and makeup and sexy clothing, whatever, which is beautiful, but there are other types of beauty. And there's a artist in Quebec that put out a music video last year where it was all plus size women naked in this music video. And it was, she's kind of more of an indie artist. So the video really worked with, with her vibe and energy. It wasn't sexual at all. It was really artistic and it got so much publicity because it was on, on the edge. And I just remember thinking, why is that on the edge? If those were all like naked, conventionally beautiful women, according to what society thinks is beautiful, like skinny and six feet tall, that this would not be taboo. This would just be another music video. And I think because we're dismantling these ideologies from the inside out, we can't just start the world over again. The more artists that just say, this is what I represent, this is what I am, this is my body, I'm happy with it, and they put it out there in whatever way they feel comfortable doing, then we just get more diversity. And I think we are starting to see that. Yeah, I think so too. Um, however, I was talking to one of my friends who is a model, and um, she's, you know, tall and very, very slim. And she was saying how she struggled so much in the industry when it came to her weight, you know, she would always have to, to think about being super thin and even until now, you know, and then she said there was a parallel because I, I said, well, you know, there's lots of like plus size models now and where I feel like we're moving into another realm. And she said, yeah, but uh, she has a friend who's a plus size model. And if she wasn't plus enough, they would tell her to gain weight. So if she lost a bit of weight where she was starting to be more of like in a middle ground, then they wouldn't want to hire her as much. So it was, it's almost like as a society, we are always trying to promote the extremes. We're trying to promote what is extraordinary on two completely probably unhealthy sides of the spectrum rather than people that are average in the middle like there's this like really bad stigma of being average or of being balanced and healthy and you know what I mean like so um 
so I thought that was pretty interesting because like you were saying, it's like we're using all these plus size models in a, in a video and now it's, oh, wow, this is extraordinary. What if we just used people that were like in the middle? What if we used a compilation of bodies, you know? Um, so I don't know. I, I, I think like you were saying, like, it's important to have everything. I think it's important to have, you know, a bunch of plus size models, a bunch of very slim models and a bunch of people in between. But I feel like we're focused. We focus a lot on the extremes. Yes, we totally do. And we idealize young artists too, people that achieve a lot of success before the age of 30 kind of thing. And I know that you have received a lot of comments on you needing to get going, get going faster before you're too old to have a career. Uh, what was that like for you? Did that make you want to work harder or was that overwhelming? It, it never, I think it always made me want to work harder, but it never actually made me work smarter, if you know what I mean, because I would always be kind of self-sabotaging myself in a way when you have it in your mind that you, you need to hurry and you need to rush and you need, you know, um, you're, you're running out of time and maybe you're not enough, then it translates into your work. And so I think, or your inability to work sometimes because you get so depressed about it that you can't even get out of bed some mornings and that's the reality of it. So I think that, um, Yes, it made me want to work faster, but I don't think that it was healthy. And I think that having a healthy, loving mindset, I was just listening to a podcast actually this morning about, um, you know, the highest achievers having just healthy um, self-talk, you know. And so I think that's really important, talking to yourself nicely, because we can be very cruel to ourselves, even more cruel than other people have been mm. to us. Yeah. And you're inevitably going to come up against that forever in this industry. I mean, knock on wood, I'd love for that to change, but do you have a routine or certain things that you ensure you do daily or whenever you need it to keep yourself in a good mental health space and not succumb to that pressure of feeling bad about your body? Yeah, I mean, um, I get up every morning and I write three things that I'm grateful for. I meditate um, for about 10, 15 minutes every morning and every night. Uh, every night I also write three things I'm grateful for. And I want to include more like actual, like looking in the mirror, self-talk. I've always kind of found it cheesy, but I feel like if I just did it and got over that, like... <laughs> feeling silly that it would actually work. Yeah, I've done that. I've done the look in the mirror and talk thing. I've done the look in the mirror and cry thing. It actually, it is good. And I think the reason why is because, you know, you wash off all your makeup or if you're a guy, maybe you're not even wearing makeup and you look at yourself in the mirror and there's kind of like a dissociation of like that, that is me. I am that person and I'm inside that person, but how am I treating them and how do I want to treat them? And you kind of just bridge the gap between your subconscious experience and your intrinsic one and the physical person that you are that you don't see daily, but everyone else sees. So it's just kind of an interesting bridging in your mind. Mm. Yeah, that's in, true. in the industry, I think another pressure that even men now are getting is with cosmetic procedures and Botox and 
you'd never got any of that done and, and it wasn't really something you were thinking about when you were working in the sex industry but then in the music industry as the album also like speaks to a bit there's so much of that pressure do you think that it's essential at this point for women that want to be successful because of that pressure to be young and be beautiful or you think that there's an opening for someone to push against that I always try to think of things in an idealistic way because I am, even though like I kind of feel like I'm negative sometimes, I'm still an optimist. Like I still believe in human integrity. And so I want to believe that there is space. And um, I mean, in the sex industry, when I was a dancer, I had all of, all of my friends who had breasts my size got breast implants within a few years of dancing. Every single one of them. I don't know one girl who kept her breasts the, the size that mine are, you know, um, in that industry. And they thought that, you know, it would make them more money. Some of them, it, it just made them feel better. Like they just, that's what they wanted and they could afford it and great, they did it but a lot of them actually thought that it would make them um, more income. And um, I would say that more times than not, people realized that it didn't actually increase their income. It increased their confidence sometimes in which that's what would increase their income. But, you know, that is not uh, a defining factor. And so I'd like to believe the same thing about the music industry that, you know, it's not really about how you look or um, your age, but rather what you're bringing to the table and that you are authentic and comfortable in your skin when you are bringing it to the table, because people can smell it when you're not, when you don't believe in yourself or when you don't believe that uh, you are kind of worthy and you're not confident in your delivery. So I think that's, that is what is the most important. And all this other stuff is really just a band-aid um, to our self-confidence, I mm -hmm. think. Yeah, it really is building yourself from the inside out. It's, you, can, you can sell yourself as anything if you are confident in it. I'm moving to your music now, which I love so much. I love your music. <laughs> all of your songs have, they all have such a distinct sound. Every single one, it brings a different genre to lend to the story that you're trying to tell with that song. Like Another Man, which was your Juno nominated piece was more reggae. Then A Lost Find is like this glorious ballad. House and Arrange is more R&B. When you're writing these songs, do you have a style in mind for that song before beginning? I do. Yeah, I actually do. I usually like I would write um, lyrics to a song, but not necessarily lyrics, actually, I would write more like free writing. And then um, I'd have like a few pages of this kind of free writing. And then I would have this kind of feeling of like a genre and a mood that I would want to translate. And so I'd get together with my writing partner, Tom, who um, actually lives in Sherbrooke now, but like we met in high school in Montreal and, um, he would, uh, I'd, I'd tell him kind of like what my idea was and he'd start playing on the piano and I would say kind of, yes, no, that's the vibe. And then when I would get the right vibe, I would start singing and pulling lyrics from this free writing notebook. And then I would kind of build the melody and the, um, and then refine the lyrics from there. 
But um, yeah, I always kind of have an idea of what the feeling of the song is going to be. So it sounds like you and Tom have a really collaborative writing process. Yeah, we do. Um, when we were uh, in high school together, we would joke that we shared a brain. So like I had one half and he had one half and we made one normal brain together. <laughs> <laughs> Highly functioning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love the, the story you were talking about with how you wrote a lost find, which is my favorite song on your first album uh, that you recorded it in your mom's basement with the really cheap basic gear and you did it in one take. There's no edits. And if you go listen to this song, you have that insane ascending climb in your voice that and then like you don't even breathe like it's so perfect I absolutely adore it and and that was just really a spontaneous composition process and that seems to happen to you with several songs on the album yeah it does um I I truly believe that artists are kind of like antennae and that we are transmitting um information from this universal universal consciousness um, if we're in tune, you know, if we're vibrating in the right frequencies. And I think that's when those magical moments happen. Obviously, sometimes you have to work and rework things and you can't always, like, I feel like a lot of artists also wait until the muse hits and their inspiration hits to write or do make art. And that is not always my process. I, I still work regardless of whether the inspiration hits or not. Um, that's part, I think, of being a professional artist and just kind of building that muscle of creating things. But um, there are those really special moments that leave you in tears at the end of it. And you're like, wow, like, I, I don't even want to change anything to this. I'm literally, I just need to relearn it now so that I can sing it again the same way. And um, yeah, A Lost Find was one of those songs and Fuck Me Good was also one of those songs. It was entirely um, a jam that that song is. Side about. note, I think that's so smart to just to, you know have your phone recording because you don't know what's going to come out. And then if you have something really magical that was born in that moment, you're like, I don't, I don't know what I did. <laughs> you need that recording to go back to. It's not always so uh, mm -hmm. black and white. Like I wrote it like this. No, it's often just coming out of you and. I've always felt that music is, is like a therapist. And sometimes you go to see a therapist and you really don't think you're doing that bad and something comes up in the session and all of a sudden you're crying. And so it's the, it's the same thing with music. You're like, oh, I'm not really feeling inspired, but I'm just going to sit down and start going. And, and then you don't know what's going to come up. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly that. And I know your sentiment with the going to the therapist and being like, I've been super healthy. There's nothing wrong in my life. I don't even really need to go to this session. And then you're there and you're like, wow, I have a lot to unpack. <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I need to ask you about your, your vocal control. So where, where did you get to with where you are now as a technical vocalist? Did you always have a pretty strong foundation for technique or you really had to build out a lot of bad habits? So I have to admit that um, singing came very easy to me as a child. Um, I always had really great pitch. Like if I listened to stuff when I was, you know, five, six years old, um, singing Disney songs, it was pretty much like perfectly on pitch. So I, I didn't have issues with that. Um, and I had a, I had a really nice tone um, and pretty great breath control even before I started taking vocal lessons. Um, in college. So 
I would say that it's kind of like, <laughs> you know, some people have to work harder than others. And admittedly, I probably didn't work as hard as others to get to where I was vocally, but um, I have spent many hours since refining that. And um, so for me, what where the challenge came was um, being able to use my voice in different ways. And so I loved singing different genres of music. And then when I, you know, kind of discovered doing this more operatic type singing with my teacher at Vanier College, because um, I was forced to do one year of classical voice before I went into jazz voice um, and I was resistant. I didn't want to do it. And uh, it turned out that I actually stayed in classical voice because I loved the challenge so much and the use of my voice in a completely different way. And that really helped um, add more to my breath control. And, um, but yeah, what I, what I think actually is the most important part of singing is actually our psychology. So um, other than the breath, which I also think is very important, it's more important than tone and all that other stuff, because if you have good breath control, then you can do a lot of great things with your voice. I mean, and I think that being technically great at things also doesn't make you a great artist. You know, Bob Marley didn't have like what would be considered the most beautiful tone in the world, but he had such a, a message and a meaning and a feeling and a grit to his voice. And it was just, you know, it's, it's so, such beautiful music and that is true artistry. So technical stuff doesn't make you a good artist but it does allow you to, if you have great breath control, try different genres of music, it allows your brain to kind of be able to come up with new melodies on the spot. It allows your, your voice to do the melodies that are happening in your brain simultaneously, right? You have more flexibility in what you're able to come up with because you can actually physically do it. So I always encourage people to, um, you know, to take lessons and to further study their, their voice or their instrument. I think a lot of people often think that if they study something too much, that they're going to lose the feeling. Um, and I also think that's the case. So I think it's really important for people to jam out and to feel free and to, to let go of a lot of their technical, um, what they think is technically right or whatever in addition to studying music. Like I think both are super important. There's so many amazing things that you just said in that like two minutes. I think vocal technique, it gives you options and it also prevents you from ever feeling fatigued or having pain in your voice. But a, a lot of singers, as you said, you know, they're, I get asked a lot by students, did, did those people have to work for years and years, you think? And I say, honestly, probably not. It sounds like their voice is super lined up. They've been singing since they were little. A lot of things were just good to go for them. But there are so many artists that do have to work on it, whether it's an endurance thing or they just want more of those options. And I think a good teacher will not damage you from that, like studying too much perspective, um, especially with pop indie music. I love when singers have an interesting crack or break in their voice. And a good teacher will 
show you how to keep that, how to even get your voice to break in different places, but they'll never, but they'll also be able to give you the ability to belt through it or whatever. And and that is more of a, a matter of finding a good teacher, which is a whole nother podcast episode I could do. But I 100% agree that a good technical singer does not make a good artist necessarily. Like Leonard Cohen comes to mind too, that he's basically speak talking, singing, and his music makes you cry all the time, right? So you don't have to be the perfect vocalist, but you do have to love the challenge of, of seeing how could I figure out what else my voice can do? And that is that um, autonomous autodidactic learning that I think pushes people to their best because you have a genuine interest in what could I figure out here? That's fun. Yeah, exactly. And I also think endurance well as well. Like, for instance, I can go on stage and belt my ass off and sing opera at the end of a full hour of belting, sing like an aria and um, do that every night. And I would be fine because I can technically and physically do it now without getting vocal nodes and, you know, ruining my voice. And I know a lot of artists Um, who are like famous artists that are, you know, signed to major labels who have had to get off tour because they damaged their vocal cords because they weren't projecting from the right place. They couldn't do it over and over again every single night. And so I think that's also a really important part of it. Um, We want our voices to last. So it's not just about this very moment. It's about like every being able to do it over and over and over again and that repetition and that consistency um being always able to rely on your voice so that's that's also important for you know taking lessons and stuff Mm -hmm. yeah and that is a danger for even the best singers that they just knew how to do it intrinsically without lessons is you, you, you're, you're just doing it. You don't know how you're doing it. And so when something goes wrong and you start to feel pain or you develop nodes, you're really knocked down to base one where you're like, I actually have to figure out how I'm doing this thing. Whereas it, you're already a great singer, but you're like, I'm going to take some lessons and figure out exactly if what I'm doing is healthy and how am I doing it? Then you have an understanding of how not to injure your voice. So yeah, lessons have so many purposes beyond just making you a better singer. They're preventative as well. Mm -hmm, Exactly. The last question I have that I like to ask all the guests is what is the best advice you ever received on singing, whether it's technique based or about building a career? I know it's going to sound like so like woo woo, whatever, but I honestly think being authentic and being confident is the most important thing when it comes to both of those things, whether it comes to building your career and networking with people and, um, you know, finding the right people for your team. It's about like knowing who you are, what you want, why you want it and going out and finding the right people who align with you. Um, you know, a lot of people think, oh, well, I have to change myself so that this like huge exec can like me. Well, no, if you have to change yourself for that person to like you, then they're not the right person. You, you know, oh, I lost this opportunity. Well, no, if they were the right person, then you, that would have aligned. So just keep searching and keep being yourself. And then I would also say the same thing when it comes to singing, having that confidence and authenticity, not trying to sound like somebody else. I remember when I was growing up, I would try to sound like Celine Dion because I loved her so much. And so I'd have this like nasal um, quality in, in the way that I was singing. 
and people would go, you have such a beautiful voice. Can you stop doing that nasal thing? And I was like, what do you mean? Like, I love Celine Dion. Celine Dion does it. So I, I want it, you know? And then when I got rid of it, I, I realized that like, I loved my voice so much more, you know? And um, I thought that was, I think that's really important. And then also with the confidence, and like I, I um, I've had students uh, as well um, for vocal coaching, and one of the main things that I've noticed with people and with myself even, it, the, I sing the worst when I am not confident in myself because our instruments are in our body. Um, we constrict things. We um, hold our breath. We breathe more shallow, and we are nervous when we're. Um, when we don't feel good about ourselves. And um, when I'm just singing from a place of like being free, I could even be slouching and not be using proper posture and, you know, all that stuff. And, and my voice will just come out in this beautiful, effortless way and on pitch and voluminous. And you know what I mean? And it's really just being in a place of comfort and confidence within myself. So I always tell people, and I've always worked with my students in a way where I'm, we work as well on, on their, on their mental state, on their mental health, on their blockages, as far as what they believe they can and can't do with their voices um, and in their lives. And I think that once those barriers are released, then their voice is also released in a way that um, can't really be explained technically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I 1000% agree. I always tell my students that are recording artists that you'll probably be a little bit nervous. Maybe you're going in the studio and you have to be confident enough in yourself to take the space you need. If you need to like have the room and make some weird sounds or you need your producer to back off and let you try something, like you need to take that space for yourself because at the end of the day, you are the artist. They are really knowledgeable and great tools, but they're just tools to help bring out the best in you. So take your space. For sure, 100%. Well, that's great advice, Story. It was such a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your story and making beautiful, beautiful music. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun.